This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and AJ Bell, and joining me again this week is Tom Sieber, Deputy Editor at Shares. Hello, everybody. So before we get started, I've got some good news from Laura, who you may have noticed has been missing from the podcast for a few weeks. And she's just had her baby called April and is now enjoying her maternity leave. So congratulations to them both and to her husband. Congratulations to Laura. So I'm hoping to get Laura back soon for a very special podcast, but more about that at a later date. So this week, we're going to chat about 10 bagger stocks, the big surge in takeovers, and why property investors are shaking in their boots after New Look's restructuring plan. We'll also talk about why a long-standing pensions fight has just had another setback in the courts, the rise of buy now, pay later, And Steve Fraser from Shares will be joining us later to chat about the tech sector. First, let's talk about the markets. Well, we quite often discuss the fund manager survey that Bank of America puts out on a regular basis. So um, for listeners who aren't quite familiar with this survey, Bank of America goes and talks to fund managers around the world to gauge how they're feeling, um, to gauge their sentiment and, what, and kind of what they've been doing. So it's a really, really good way of sort of trying to work out how the big institutional investors are thinking about the state of the market. So um, the latest survey is out and it's quite interesting. It says 58% of fund managers that were surveyed believe we're now in a new bull market. So and it's no longer, yeah, no longer a recession. So it's, I mean, this is quite optimistic considering we've got um, plenty of reasons to be, to be fearful. You know, we're all still walking around with our masks on. Um, there's restrictions on how many people can go back to their offices. Um, unfortunately, lots of people are still suffering from coronavirus. So, you know, the, the list is, is pretty big. So I'm quite surprised that um, these fund managers seem to be quite bullish at the moment so um but there's a couple of bits in the survey which would suggest it's not an out and out excitement for everyone because the the amount of cash that these fund managers are holding has gone from 4.6 percent to 4.8 percent of their portfolio so what really they're doing is just keeping their options open so if we've got a market pullback they've got some money to essentially buy shares at a lower price. So Bank of America kind of um, categorizes it. If this cash level is less than 4%, then these institutional investors are being greedy or feeling greedy. Um, If the cash level is more than 5%, it's a symbol of fear. So we're edging to that 5%, but um, we're not at that point at the moment. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that probably sort of says more than perhaps their responses saying that they're more bullish. The, the, the fact that the cash, um, cash sort of buffers or cash reserves are, are going up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so if you also look at 
what they've been doing with their portfolios. There continues to be a bit of profit taking in tech and healthcare, and sort of this money's flowing into smaller companies and value stocks, but they're still showing no interest in banks or energy companies, which which are cheap, but clearly they're cheap for a reason. Uh, yeah. Both lots of um, negative factors sort of clouding their sort of near-term prospects. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting sort of talking about how um, fund managers are, are reacting to the market. And um, if we look at where the market is, because we're kind of approaching the end of the third quarter, it, it has, you know, you saw a very rapid rebound from um, the, the big correction we had in March. Um, but since the end of June, it's it's been probably more a story of kind of resilience. But there have been some markets which have, uh, you know, really outperformed it. If you look at the FTSE All Worlds Index, which covers all the developed markets, that's up around about 9%, so, somewhere in that area. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the strength of the US market, just simply because of its weighting in that index. It, it really dominates that index. Uh You've also seen a recovery in China, and I suppose in some ways that's logical because China was, you know, for obvious reasons, was the first country to really be affected by the coronavirus crisis. Um, and therefore, it was always likely to be the one that perhaps was, would be lifted out of it. But it's still notable that you have seen some quite encouraging economic... Just going back to that point, though, about it being kind of slightly uneven, the, the FTSE 100 is a real kind of laggard um, compared with other international markets. You know, while we talked about the FTSE All World being up 9%, the FTSE 100 is down, you know, 1.5% um, since the end of June. So it, it's really struggling. And I, I think it's it's kind of what you were talking about there with the fund managers, Dan, that, you know, it has quite a heavy weighting towards areas like banks and oil and gas where there is limited investor interest, despite the fact that they're looking quite cheap because of the challenges they face. And in a wider sense, you've also got the fact that the UK still has the issue of Brexit, which it, it seems to be wrestling with at the moment. Um, and there are kind of you know, mounting concerns that there'll be a, a kind of unruly end to the transition period at the end of 2020. So, you know, that's, that's clearly um, a concern for people. And it's interesting because probably if there is going to be a deal, it would need to be about the middle of October. And at that point, there'll also be attention turning to the US presidential elections and what happens there. And whilst it looks as if Biden has, has got, um, the, you know, the Democratic hopeful Biden's got a pretty strong advantage in the polls, it, a lot of people think it will come down to a few battleground states where you know, the margins are a little bit um, smaller and there could be, you know, a situation where there's there's some uncertainty around the result, particularly with a lot of um, votes coming in um, as postal votes. So there are these these risks, as you talked about, you know, even, even putting the, the COVID-19 pandemic to one side. So, and there's, <clears throat> there's quite a lot of speculative money in the markets. Um, there was a report in Bloomberg recently talking about record inflows into a leveraged um, product that tracks US technology um, stocks or the US NASDAQ index. And that um, is perhaps a sign that, you know, that there's still um, 
some kind of speculative money behind behind the markets that that could disappear quickly if things turn uh so just as the fund managers have been putting some cash you know to one side to to kind of prepare for um you know potential opportunities to buy stocks more cheaply it, it may be that people will be thinking in that direction sort of in terms of their own investments as well yeah so elsewhere on the markets we've had um some good news from several smaller companies actually i i feel that quite often if 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 you're an investor and you're you're happy to take the risk of putting money into small caps, a lot of people look for this 10-bagger, the idea that you can make 10 times your money. So for that to happen, you need the stock to go up 900%. Um, and Greatland Gold has just hit that milestone. So for its shares have delivered a 10 times return for investors this year, which is amazing, isn't it? So yeah. um you know, in nine months you, to make that sort of return is, is outstanding. So it's, it's got a gold um, exploration project in Australia where there's increasing excitement. So it's, it's the reason why shares have um, had a very good rally in the last week is it has some very positive dual results again. Uh, it also has got the mining lease for it as well. So it's ticking off the boxes essentially it's de-risking its project but um you know anything to do with mining is, is never going to be risk-free it's just risking on on a very long journey of um things it needs to do so i i had a look and uh, i can see there's six companies on the london stock exchange this year are 10 baggers um so three of them are linked to businesses trying to come up with treatments or services for, for COVID. So that's Synergen, Novacite, and Avacta. Um, there's also a couple of other names, Seven Digital, and uh, a stock which I confess I know absolutely nothing about called All Active Asset Capital. So, um, you know, congratulations if you've been in those. Um, yeah. You made four times your money. Right. So, I mean, there's a couple of other names on the market last week, which have um, seen some really, really strong uh, share price gains. One is TT Electronics, which has developed a COVID screening device. Um, and another is called Surface Transforms, which, which had a big contract win to supply carbon ceramic brake discs. Um, it also raised its earnings expectations and, and its share price nearly doubled in a day. Um, but uh, elsewhere, we've seen um, the bid terms come in from Garda World, which is trying to buy the security firm G4S. For, it's offering three billion pounds. The offer's been rejected, and Garda World has essentially gone hostile. It's, it's essentially saying that G4S is not not talking to it. It's, it's, it's just no interest in having conversation, um, and it's it's made some very cutting comments saying that G4S. Is, yeah, G4S needs an owner, not a manager. It's a business which is not delivered for shareholders, customers, employees, or the public. Um, it needs professional experienced leadership uh, to distance itself from its unhappy past. And also, Garda World is sort of making the point that um, where its team hold nearly half, uh, you know, own nearly half of its business, G4S board and management hold virtually no shares in the company. So you know, quite brutal, nasty sort of comments there. Harsh, but but some people might say harsh but fair, potentially, I guess. Unfortunately for G4S, it can hardly point to a, a strong track record to, to kind of fight off those sort of claims, can, can it? <laughs> no, no, not at all. 
so yes, we, we have seen some lives in the M&A market um, and, and that's given market sentiment a little bit of a boost. Um, it's not often you'd see a $20 billion deal get overshadowed, but actually the um, Gilead, the big US pharma company's acquisition of a cancer specialist, um, it very much played second fiddle to it for the market's attention to the news of Oracle's um, deal with TikTok. And I think that's partly because this had wider market implications, given the links it has to the ongoing trade war between the US and China. It gets a little bit complicated here, but but just bear with me. Um, it was thought, and it was certainly looking like um, ByteDance, which is the, the company behind TikTok, the Chinese company behind TikTok, would sell um, TikTok's US oper operations to Microsoft. Um, but there, there appeared to be fears that the US would essentially block this deal. What's happened now, apparently, is, is Microsoft has been jilted at the altar and Oracle, which has close links to the Trump administration, um, is going to step in as TikTok's tech partner in the US. Uh, so it, it's interesting. It, time will tell if this is sort of sufficient and if this move kind of enables TikTok to continue operating in the US. And it, the White House is yet to sign off on the deal. But um, perhaps given, you know, Oracle's position, it might be better place to, to make that work. Um, a little bit closer to home, we've had um, chip designer Arm, which is essentially the biggest UK technology company, um, has been bought from Japanese investment bank SoftBank by US um, firm Invida for $40 billion. Um, SoftBank is essentially walking away from this deal with a pretty tidy profit. It bought uh, um, in the kind of aftermath of the Brexit vote when sterling was quite weak. So it, it sort of took advantage of that situation, essentially. Um, again, there seem to be some links to the, the kind of ongoing spat between the US and China, though. Um, arm design kit is used in a lot of Chinese smartphones and other consumer electronics. And there may well be sensitivities on the Chinese side, you know, almost flipping things around from TikTok if it's owned by a US operator. So there are also some questions, including from one of ARM's founders, about whether the deal should be blocked by the UK authorities, given, you know, the current government's, one of the gov government's current priorities is to build up the domestic tech sector, you know, whether or not they want this business being sold off to the US. So tech's been a great place to make money in 2020, and there remains a lot of enthusiasm towards the space. Actually, many UK investors seem happy to own overseas listed stocks if it means that they can get access to great companies. So we had a chat with our resident tech expert, Steve Fraser, um, to see what's catching his eye in the sector. So Steve, it seems a few months too early in the year to be talking about snowflakes, but it's the name that everyone's talking about. Can you tell us why? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting business. I, I, I haven't been aware of it for very long, but it's, it's a big data platform, so public cloud. So we talked recently about cloud, about how powerful um, Amazon's AWS and Microsoft Azure are um, in, in the public cloud space, where they effectively host um, applications on, on behalf of other businesses. And Snowflake is playing very much in that market. So, I um, mean, effectively, it's going to be a, with, in competition with, with your Amazons and your Microsofts, which are a pretty bold move to, to say the least. Steve, just on that, I just, I noticed when I was kind of reading up on it that Snowflake actually seems to be quite a big customer of Amazon in terms of using its um, 
AWS service. I just wondered what that what that means kind of going forward. Well, as far as I'm aware, um, Snowflake has some applications and it might well sell some of those applications across the AWS platform. But its core business is to effectively do what AWS does. So right. um, its main proposition is, is to provide an alternative to AWS in, um, rather than working with them. Um, which is, um, which is, as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a bold move. I mean, it's a, it's a California-based business. It's, it's only been around about ten years or so, a bit less than ten years. Um, and, I, and as far as I'm aware, it's, it still seems to be loss-making as well. So um, evidently, it's got quite a big challenge ahead of it. So the reason why we're talking about Snowflake on the podcast is that the company is coming to the stock market. Um, it's just uh, valued um, the shares uh, at. $120 each. So that values the business at more than $33 billion. So back in February, when it lasted some fundraising, it was valued at $12 billion. So it clearly shows there's a big appetite for investors to get involved. I just see that Bloomberg Court said it was Snowflake gives investors a rare opportunity to disrupt Amazon. So, uh, you know, so I guess exactly. from your perspective, Steve, you, you, follow the, so you, you follow the tech space closely. This is it seems to be, this is a name that if you're not quite aware of it, we should definitely be paying close attention. Well, absolutely. And, and, and lots of investors like to follow famous, uh, famous investors. And, and, and the fact that Warren Buffett has chosen to throw his hat into the ring and, and, and allegedly spend £500 million on buying some Snowflake stock is something to sit up and take notice of for two reasons. Partly because it's Warren Buffett, right? And who doesn't follow what Warren Buffett does? But secondly, I mean, it's, it's a real change for him. I mean, he's, he's always been someone who, who has avoided technology stocks in general, simply because he, he feels he doesn't really understand those business models. So he tends not to invest in things he doesn't really understand. Um, he, he kind of has, has tuned in a bit to tech over the last few years and bought a stake a while back in IBM, for example. But I mean, it seems to be quite a bold call for um, someone of, of his standing to, to be back in Snowflake. So evidently, it's, it's, got, a, it's got a proposition that is um, seem to be exciting and, and you know the market for cloud public cloud is so large I mean, 760 billion dollars is, is a recent estimate that we, we, we've written about um, so so presumably there's, there's, there's space for more than two or three players in the market so I mean maybe there's room to grow um, over the, certainly the near term and not coming into too much competition with each other but you have to wonder five or ten years from now um, what, you know they, they're bound to come be stepping on each other's toes um, and it'll be interesting to see what snowflake have got to to to, to fight their their corner so in the cloud space has been um quite exciting for some time and you know, so there's a, lots of businesses are shifting this space i mean it might be worth explaining to listeners exactly how cloud computing works and sort of the benefits it might be able to bring to people it's, it's, it's exciting is exactly the word, Dan, and, it, and it's, it's been that way for, for 10 years or so. In fact, cloud computing has been around for, for probably a couple of decades, but what, what has caught up is the bandwidth. So it all works on the internet, so you're effectively connecting centrally to a database so you can access applications from anywhere. And in, in the modern age of mobile phones, that's, of course, really attractive to, to businesses and, and to you and me, right? I mean, we, we, we watch Netflix effectively in the cloud. We, we go and use Facebook that's in the cloud. So the ability to do it from wherever you are and whatever device you're using 
um, is, is highly attractive to, to businesses and organisations. But it's the bandwidth, internet bandwidth and speed, super connectivity has really brought cloud into its own. Uh, up until about 10 years ago, we just couldn't carry enough data to really make the cloud work at the commercial level. Um, and, and the internet just wasn't quick enough. And now we don't really have those problems. And you'll see with, with uh, the next phase of broadband connections and with 5G mobile connections, I mean, speed is not going to be unbounded. They're not going to be an issue now. So, of course, if you can connect um, people from all over the world uh, across a central one or two or several databases, um, then that's a, a great way to, to, to operate. Um, and that's why, you know, there, there are these estimates in the, you know, in the market talking about $760 billion in terms of revenue by 2022, 23, I think it was. And if you can put that into a context, I mean, that's like, it would take Sainsbury 26 years to earn $760 billion of sales, if, you know, going at its 2019 uh, rate. So it's, it's an enormous number. So that suggests that not only is it big now, but it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and the cost savings are enormous. Um, just using AWS, and this is Amazon Web Services, so it's the biggest player. It has about a third of, of the market at the moment. But using that as an example, you're looking at putting a basic web application into the cloud as opposed to hosting it yourself. You're looking at making about 76% cost saving. So instead of it costing $110, you're looking at about $26. So the benefits are, are not just practical. The benefits are on the balance sheet, on the P&L. You know, it's, it's absolutely in a finance director's face. It also feels like something that's been accelerated by COVID, I guess, because businesses are leaning on it sort of even more than they would have done otherwise. Is that kind of fair? Yeah, I'm not in the long term because obviously you've been reading my copy. Uh, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's accelerating the existing trend. Um, it hasn't changed anything fundamentally. It has just exactly that sped things up because sure. we've all been working from home. We've all been under this lockdown regime. And, and even now we're talking about maybe going back into into uh, an increase on the level of lockdown. So we've all been working at home and we've been able to do that because of things like cloud computing. So we can access applications like the one we're using today, Zoom. We can access these applications because they're all in the cloud and I'm sitting talking to you on my phone, in my house, you're in your house, you're on your phone and it's seamless. And the cloud enables us to do that, which is fantastic. But I mean, really, um, you've seen grandma using Zoom, you know, over the COVID lockdown. You've seen, you know, Uncle, Uncle Jeffrey's not very good at technology using you know, Microsoft Teams graphs or, or other applications in the cloud. Um, and they would never normally have done that, but it's put them in a position where that's been the only way to go and see friends and family, et cetera. So they've got tech savvy, which is, which is a great thing. It's grand, it's not just, you know, 16 year olds. So, Steve, what else has been catching your eye in the tech space in the last couple of weeks? Well, I mean, the payment space, Dan, has been, have been really exciting for a long time. And <clears throat> the idea of, of being able to pay not just with your credit card, but to pay with your mobile phone and, um, and you know, take, take it on, on the bus and, and have your, your, your card effectively embedded in your phone. It's, it's, it's really quite an interesting um, dynamic. I mean, it's, it's quite new technology if you think about it. It's not that long ago that we didn't have these facilities. So there's lots of new businesses that have cropped up over the, in the recent few years um, trying to enable uh, people to make electronic payments. Um, and you don't necessarily need a credit card for it as well. So a couple of UK companies, I mean, there's big ones like uh, you know, MasterCard and Visa and PayPal in particular with electronic payments. But even in the UK, there's a couple of quite interesting companies. One's called Bango, um, come out of, of um, the, sort of the tech intelligentsia space of, of Silicon Fens in Cambridgeshire. 
and another one called Brockett. And they both had some recently, you know, recent promising updates. I mean, the problem they've had uh, for a while is that as their market gets bigger, so the more money spent over their, um, over their platform, effectively, the more purchases that are made, um, their, their margins are getting driven down partly by, by the retailers, by the banks, um, and by app stores, etc. So, so maintaining their margins has been really tricky for them. Um, and for an example, I think it was about 2010-11, I was, I was talking to Bango's chief executive, and he was hoping for a margin of three to maybe five percent per transaction. So that'd be their cut of any transaction over their platform. They'll get three to five percent. And and in recent years, they're down to one percent, and then they're actually ed edging below one percent. Now it seems to have stabilised to some degree, uh, something around 0.9 to one percent. But I mean, that shows you the pressure. You know, as as their target market gets bigger, it hasn't actually generated significantly bigger revenues and certainly not profits as yet but they're starting to show some really promising signs in terms of the kind of um, third parties uh, the retailers the banks they're connecting uh, the app stores they're connecting they seem to be getting eventually some some real scale into their businesses so both bank bango and boku do seem to be um edging ever closer to that that kind of that fantastic breakthrough in terms of profitability. And then we can start as investors looking at them in terms of P ratings, because at the moment, P ratings don't work because they're, they're not making any profit. So I was going to say, how important is kind of credibility for them in terms of the sort of security angle? I mean, security is obviously going to be a massive issue. And, and um, I mean, these are businesses that work B2B, right? So they're not talking to you as an individual, as a consumer. So yeah. they don't need to build up trust with the consumer. What they are doing, though, is building up their, their reliability and their trust network with financial institutions, with the app store providers, with retailers. And they sit in the middle because they're effectively what they, their, their product does is it allows you to make a purchase and then the price of that purchase is added to your mobile phone bill. So that's, that's the difference. So you don't have to put in credit card details. Uh, you don't have to worry about attaching your bank account. It's all just going to go straight onto your mobile phone bill. And then when you get your phone bill through, then, of course, then, then you pay for it uh, to your, your, your mobile carrier. Um, so there's not that issue with, you know, Johnny in the street doesn't know who Bango is. Because Johnny in the street will never know who Bango is, probably. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because I think you know, Boku does quite a lot of work with Spotify. So it's, it's, uh, which, as a as a sort of streaming platform, they've been um, you know, attracting a lot of new um, sort of subscribers uh, over the recent years. The, the idea of you could listen to Spotify for free as long as you hear adverts, but um, actually, if you pay a monthly subscription, then you get. Uh, the ability to sort of download things to your phone you don't have to listen to the adverts anymore so the idea of um yeah, it's quite an easy sell if you're interested in it um you know, saying oh, we'll, we'll just add this cost to your phone bill uh, i think in, in particularly in sort of emerging markets boku are sort of um seeing sort of quite big opportunities here and i imagine there must be lots of other retailers perhaps with subscription services who who might be able to sort of tap into this um, e the convenience factor really isn't it so yeah absolutely yeah. And, and, and certainly there's there's been some early groundwork in in areas where there are lots of unbanked people so people who don't have bank accounts um so any way you can allow them to make payments uh, digitally is, is obviously going to um, be an opportunity 
Um, but it's not just about these unbalanced environments as well. It's just about convenience. You know, in Western market, it's about what makes life very easy. Um, the fewer clicks you have to go through and the less information you have to stick on your phone, obviously, the more happy and the easier it is for you as a consumer. I mean, Spotify is an interesting business. It's, you know, there are other businesses like it that have had this, this kind of premium model where you, you get some stuff for free, but then, as you said, you, you take adverts, but then you can upgrade and, and pay, was it 10 of a month or something, and get subscriptions, uh, get subscriptions that doesn't involve advertising. And we're seeing, uh, we're seeing other businesses adopt very similar models. And you'll be aware that BBC and ITV, it's Gripbox uh, TV show, and it's, it's, it's their way of trying to attack the kind of Netflixes of the world in pay TV. But effectively, it's, it's, you'll get an ITV shows without adverts. That's, that's what your subscription is paying for. And I think we'll increasingly see um, this sort of market rolled out. Um, YouTube are doing the same thing. You can get a subscription with YouTube and that will just take away the advertising. Because, you know, advertising is a great way of generating revenue for certain businesses. But as a, as a, a viewer, a consumer, you know, they get on your nerves now again, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Certainly do, yeah. Just, just also in the, um, just going back to the snowflake thing, I think it's what's quite interesting. We've had this kind of bit of a sellout in, in the tech space. It's had, it's had a very good bounce back from from the um, from the, the COVID pandemic. It's kind of um, hit the market worst in, in around March time. But we're starting to see quite a lot of, of, of technology businesses come to the market. Not in the UK, sadly. The UK IPO market is still relatively quiet, barring the hut. Um, but I mean, you're, you're starting to see companies like um, Airbnb, you know, this big kind of disrupts to the wholesale space is, is looking to, to move into the US stock market. Um, Palantir, which is this, um, well, I'm not even sure I'm allowed to tell you, I might, I might get shot, but it's, it's all about data analytics effectively um, and using artificial intelligence to crunch data. But it works for the US government, it works for um, lots of governments and shady organisations. Um, it's got some very, very sensitive information so there's only a certain level of information that they'll ever be able to give you but it's very highly rated um if that comes to the market it'll be really interesting to see how the journalists can to, to engage in that because of, of the issues around sensitivity but there's, there's a sign that there's unity there's, there's been a steady flow and, and it does make you ponder the question whether those companies are racing to get to the market now because they reckon this is as high as, as, as tech valuations are going to go for the, for the short term. So it might be a really good time to raise some cash um, while the cash is, is readily available. Yeah, I mean, the tech space is so, um, you know, it's been very popular with investors this year. And I think, you know, we'll definitely be coming back to this area on the podcast on a regular basis. So thanks very much, Steve, for joining us. So on to the world of retail and property. So clothing seller New Look has been in the headlines and its restructuring has implications for property investors across the country. So Tom, tell us what's going on. Yeah, so this involves what's called a CVA or a company voluntary arrangement. Um, and it's, it's something you've seen crop up quite a lot in the retail space in recent years because many retailers have obviously really been struggling thanks partly to consumer uncertainty, but probably most pressingly because a lot of sales have migrated from the high street and from physical shops to the internet. Um, and that's a trend that's been accelerated by COVID. Um, what a CVA is, is essentially it's an insolvency process. So it allows a financially challenged company to renegotiate debt with its creditors, um, including with its landlords. What it means in practice for a landlord is that it essentially 
it has to accept lower rents um, and it's kind of incentive for doing that is to avoid having a vacant lot um, and quite often you know for obvious reasons landlords feel a bit miffed at the end of this process and I think there's a sense on the part of um, you know the the investors in retail property um, and that that whole industry that CBAs have been used somewhat opportunistically at times and there were signs of this backlash with the new law new sorry with the new look CBA um, there were suggestions ahead of the vote um, yesterday that the likes of British land and land securities were planning to vote against um, the CBA uh, which essentially would um, or is going to involve a situation where rent payments are linked to turnover. Uh, ultimately, New Look prevailed. It got support of 75% of its creditors for the plan, so it, it is going to happen. And that has implications for other retailers because it suggests that CBAs remain a viable option and that whilst they, you know, they're not happy about it, landlords will swallow it you know, if, if they have to. Um, and for for the landlords themselves and for kind of investors in retail property essentially they're, they're they're stuck with assets which are worth a lot less than they were historically and you know for which there's likely to be a very kind of limited market um for them to sell these assets on um we've already seen shopping center um investor into effectively collapse and that shows you know the decline what, what you know the strain the decline of the high street is having on landlords so with i think with new lookers um setting the precedent isn't it it's it, if, if they can get away with this um you know essentially forcing landlords you know it's almost like blackmail really isn't it so saying that if we don't yeah. if you don't support <laughs> us um there will be no business left i mean so quite interesting there, there was there was some chatter that boohoo was waiting to buy the name uh, and just sure. keep New Look going as an online operation. If it went Which to they've done, they've done with is it Monsoon and and other sort yeah. of places they've done that. But but for, for New Look to continue as um, sort of a bricks and mortar business now, it's sort of there must be you know all these property investors must be just sort of sitting there thinking, oh yeah, come on, we've had such a tough time, and now you've got such a great, very large business like New York, uh, sorry, uh, business like New Look saying. Um, you got to you got to support this, and everyone, all the other retailers, are just going to try the same thing. Realize that, yeah, they... and, and, and I mean, I guess it, it extends beyond retail a bit. I think you you, you may see some of this in the hospitality sector as well. So, um, yeah, I I agree. It's it's not it's not good news. So it's not good news for those big, diversified kind of investors in commercial property like British Land and Land Securities, who still have quite a significant weighting to to retail. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, we, we've talked lots about property on the space before, and um, you know, retail is still looking a very, very tough place to be, really, isn't it? And um, you know, and if you're invested in in property space as well, it's certainly not a not a breeze at the moment. No. What else should we cover on the podcast this week? How about pensions? As a big campaign has been in the news again. Yeah, I mean, I'll see um, our, our resident. Pensions expert Tom Selby would normally be um, racing onto the podcast to talk about this, but he's uh, he's enjoying his his holiday at the moment. So, um, so yes, we've we've got the, the the Court of Appeal has ruled against campaigners who've challenged the rise in the state pension age for women on the grounds of unlawful discrimination. 
so they, they lost high court battle in July and and this is now the appeal which they've lost here so really it's it, campaigners were claiming that women born in the 1950s were un, uh, treated unfairly by sort of the rapid changes to pension age which is due to reach 66 later this year um, so the courts have come out and said introducing the same state pension age for men and women did not amount to unlawful discrimination so the campaigners are now planning to take this case to the Supreme Court so it may not be the last we've heard of this issue. That's interesting yeah and um, just finally on the podcast this week there's been a, a big development with a Swedish company called Klarna which is relevant to many people in the UK as it is fueling what many people believe is a dangerous habit. Dan explain all. Yeah, so this, this fintech business called Klarna has just raised some capital which values the business at just under $11 billion. So uh, it's it become very large uh, and lots of speculation now that its next um, phase in its life will be to list the company on a stock market some point in the not too distant future. So it's, 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 it's an interesting business. It's got shareholders include... Um, Australia's Commonwealth Bank, the US venture capital investor Sikoa, um, and also the rapper Snoop Dogg. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it, and what it does is buy now, pay later. So it helps um, retailers offer the ability for, for customers to essentially buy some goods and they can settle up the bill um, at a later date. So customers tend to have up to 30 days before they have to pay and they don't have to pay any interest or fees to do this so so really retailers see it as a fantastic way to capture that immediate interest so if, you, if you're just browsing on um, a, one of these or retail fast say like one of the fashion websites or you might see something on social media someone promoting some products you think okay i can i can literally just you know, go onto the website and buy it and not have to worry immediately about paying thing but herein lies the problem because there is a risk that people are buying stuff they cannot afford and yeah. they're getting into debt um, and then there there's also a growing debate saying that this really should be a regulated business um, you know, regulated operation so if you're buying something and you haven't paid for it yet then you know essentially you you are owing money to someone, so it's got surely got to fall under um, you know in the UK the financial service the financial conduct authority. So it's um, there's this growing sort of concern that people are getting into problems. So back in February, the Times ran an article which and, and they spoke to um, a website called Resolver that helps consumers to handle grievances and, and Resolver was saying that complaints about pay now buy later products had risen by 88% in six months and the debt charity step change said it also noticed more buy now pay later products among the debts of people who were seeking advice so it, it's an area that um, seems to be grabbing much more attention but not necessarily good way so no. I, I was just thinking actually tom that it's if you've got companies like asos and boohoo all these and jd sports all seeing rapid earnings growth i wonder how much 
of their sales are sort of being driven by this buy now, pay later. And imagine yeah, if, it wasn't, if there wasn't this sort of tailwind there. No, absolutely. And, and I mean, what, you know, what happens if people don't pay later? Yeah, I mean, this is, Klarna is, uh, is responsibility to collect the money. So Klarna is responsible for collecting the money and the retailer gets 96 to 98% of the value of the products. So there's 9 million Brits using it and Klarna claims, claims to have 90 million users worldwide. So this is, this is huge, absolutely huge. So um, it, it, yes, it's, it's cheaper obviously than, than using a credit card or store cards. So you can see some positives for a customer, but you know, I, I, I worry about people getting to debt a lot. And I think that this, this service is literally making it so easy for you to start racking up bills and um, the idea of just worry about it later. And the fact that there's no, there's no real interest to pay. It's yeah. And it's pitched at, at a, at maybe a sort of section of the, um, or a demographic that, that hasn't benefited maybe from great financial education and, and therefore maybe is sort of more prone to, to going down this road and, and finding finding themselves in a, a difficult position. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, if you think about um, unemployment um, at the moment is growing amongst um, the young um, adults, um, you know, and sort of the, the youth demographic, it's, Particularly, they're finding it hard to find work at the moment. You know, people coming out of school, um, you know, amid the coronavirus, it is, it is really concerning. So if that's their target market, as you say, um, and unemployment's going up, then you know, it's it's like a dang, very dangerous mixture here. The idea of this is buy now, pay later. Um, it doesn't I, seem it doesn't seem a sign of a, either a kind of a healthy economy or, or really, you know, a particularly good sign, as you were pointing out for the likes of Assos that, you know, it's, it's relying on a tailwind from people who, who can't afford to buy the products in the first place. Yeah. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out that, that there are, sometimes you do have to pay a fee. I think there's, there's certain banks that if, if a Klarna payment is made using one of their credit cards, and this includes people like Tesco bank, um, they will, they will put a, a charge onto it because they do, you know, these banks classify it as a borrowing product rather than straightforward purchase. So that, uh, I imagine if, you know, if, if, if there is a big, um, sort of consumer backlash or sort of concerns growing about them, this area, perhaps more, more sort of credit card providers will, will impose these fees, but, but it is worth pointing also worth pointing out, it's quite a bit of competition in this area. So PayPal, offers 0% credit for four months if you're spending more than £99 on buy now, pay later stuff. Um, and there's ClearPay as well, also have um, a similar product here. So it, it's, it worries me and, um, and certainly it seems to be worrying lots of other people. Um, and I imagine that the more popular it becomes, the, perhaps the more um, backlash there will be um, against the regulators saying that you really got to take a much closer look at this issue. Absolutely. Great. Thanks a lot for listening this week. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, the iPhone podcast app or Podbean and just search for Money and Markets. Please do tell your friends and family about the podcast and it is helpful if you can leave a review. The other Tom will join Dan next week, so make sure you listen in. See you later. Thanks. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. 
and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.